Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm Henry Jukes, a developer and experimentation advisor for Split Software. Uh, today with me, I have Jeff Grumman. Uh, hi, Jeff. Hey, Henry. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How's your week been? All right. All right. I'm excited to uh, to chat more about DevOps. Um, you know, usually I'm stuck talking security, so it's kind of fun to talk about something that's uh, really interesting and and uh, definitely dear to my heart as well. Awesome. And we also hey, have Scott Nixon. Yeah. Hey, it's Scott Nixon here, uh, DevOps consulting with with Stelligent, uh, doing a lot of fun database pipelines and other things like that. And uh, but yeah, a lot of AWS. So let, let's uh, let's talk some metrics and pipelines, man. Looking forward to it. Sounds great. Yeah. So as you're saying, Scott, our, our topic this week is on kind of measurement for DevOps. So, uh, you know, wanting to really dig into this process of how do you become data driven? What type of data is really relevant to, you know, a DevOps team within an organization? And then how do you kind of use that data to, you know, perform alerts, share that information, create dashboards and, and you know, actually take action as a, a business on that data that you're collecting. Um, so to kick things off, I think it's really helpful to talk about, well, what type of data, you know, of all of the different things that, that's going to be generated by an organization is relevant in the DevOps context? What type of things do we actually care about um, as a DevOps team? Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript, and that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. So I'll, I'll jump right in and, and, you know, obviously I think one of the questions that I thought of right before we kind of jumped into this was I was thinking like, at like what point does it make sense for an organization like to start measuring all of these metrics? I mean, obviously you want to only measure things that you're going to actually, that are going to change your behavior. Like, you know, like why measure how many deploys you're doing or how many defects you have, if it's not actually going to change your behavior, if you're just like counting things up. Um, you know, I, I think, that for me is a fundamental thing. And so it's like, when does it make sense as an organization to start measuring these things? And obviously, uh, well, not obviously necessarily, but you know, I think, uh, you know, you want to start implementing more of these practices and measuring things when you're trying to like improve something, whether it's quality or speed or um, feedback to your engineers. And so my general sense of this, is gonna, it's going to be different for every organization, but um, I feel like it's when you're going to start feeling some form of pain. Uh, and, and so I feel like you have to have some kind of catalyst. And then that informs kind of the metrics that you would want to do. And I, I think, you know, I don't necessarily think a failed uh, pipeline or a, a failed deployment is necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, we should be doing things hopefully you're doing enough deploys and enough changes that things are changing all the time. So you expect some amount of failure. Um, I think it's, you have to find like, like are your changes small enough that the, that the failures are isolated or small and they're easy to roll back and those types of things. So, I mean, to me, I think 
I think if I was going to give the advice, I'd be like, make sure you have a really tight uh, recovery cycle. So like if you, if you deploy something in it and it, and it was, it's throwing 500 errors, you know, build, build that system to roll back that change um, and allow and, and trigger an alert to your, to your team to fix address, however you want to put it. So, so that's kind of where my brain is starting on this topic. I, I totally agree, um, Scott. You know, it, it actually started to make me think about, uh, I've seen in my career, I've seen so many uh, security dashboards where, you know, just for the sake of having something to present, right, um, the security team would come up with numbers that are coming out of like a ticketing system or something like that. So we'll see like, hey, here's the number of tickets that we've gone through in the last, you know, week, month, quarter, whatever, or you know, here's a number of, you know, alerts that have come out of the antivirus system. You know, the numbers were there. All we had to do was like sort of, you know, copy and paste them. And so they end up on a dashboard somewhere. Um, and I really like the idea of saying, <clears throat> take a step back from that and say what, you know, in this case, it's what story do you want to tell? Like, what are you trying to, tr you know, what, what message are you trying to provide to say, you know, maybe it's value that you're providing, um, you know, and, and, and so in the, in the DevOps world, I would think, you know, you might want to talk about, you know, features that are being released or quality or something that, you know, you can measure and say, hey, this is, this is, this is something we want, right? It sort of matches up with our mission or, um, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish or something like that. Or, hey, we know that we've got a ton of failures that keep happening. So we're going to start measuring them because we want to see that number shooting down. But it's got to have a message, right? And, and, and I think, you know, when you see like this whole list, this whole enumeration of, of metrics that, you know, you're supposed to be following for DevOps, um, it makes me think about, well, who is, man, like who's going to track all of that? Who's putting all that together? And who's actually looking at it? And I, you know, again, to Scott's point, I think there's, there's a lot to that to say, you got to be a little bit mindful about, you know, what, why are you doing it? What, you know, why are you putting the effort into it and who's looking at it? And unless there's some, something valuable, you know, in that, then, you know, start small and, and, you know, build upon it. I think in operations, we're in a position where we have a lot of different responsibilities. You know, you are often working on the deployment pipeline. So you care about releases, release cadence, you care about the health of the systems and the infrastructure. So you, you're looking at uptime metrics and, you know, you can be responsible for, for every single system and what it's doing. Um, you care about the quality of releases. So you might care about, you know, number of issues and incidents and, and that core tracking. And even, you know, as you were talking about, Jeff, the, the, the security has a myriad of other concerns that um, cover, you know, from the product side to the infrastructure side to the updates that are happening on the underlying hardware. Um, and, I, you know, I think this theme that both of you called out is it's easy to create a million dashboards, a hundred metrics. And, you know, especially if you're using any cloud system, pretty much every tool that you're going to be using is happy to auto generate a dashboard and, you know, Datadog or something like that, that has all of that data uh, there. But, you know, if you look at a dashboard and there's a metric 
and you know you don't know if it's high or low or if it is high you don't know what to do about it or if it's low you don't have a particular action item that you should be taking then you aren't really getting any value out of that metric right you need you know, the, the, there's a, a reason why things should turn red and green. And, and then, you know, th there's that whole process of trying to tune something where like, oh, this, this turns red, but it's okay. It happens like twice a day when we have peak traffic. So we just don't worry about that. Like that, that becomes honestly far more of a risk for organizations than, you know, being able to have that data in front of you. So there, there's some challenges to being data driven. So yeah. one of the things, what I was just going to make the quick comment of that building out these dashboards and collecting a bunch of stuff, it gives you like a sense of accomplishment that you've done something. And I would just, uh, like my tendency is just to try not to accomplish something, just try to get like one or two metrics and then go from there and then like add things to it. Oh, okay. Well, this isn't changing our behavior. Like how many deploys you do a day or a week, like, is that important because that means you're shipping and fixing things or I don't know, like I, you know, I just don't know what, what's going to be valuable to you. In my experience, um, I, a lot of the software projects I've managed as a engineering manager, uh, you know, like we're doing, you know, like we'll do 10 deploys in a day as we're like implementing some new system and then we'll go silent for like multiple weeks. And sometimes it's because we're not doing any development in that time period. <laughs> we're doing other things, but um, you know, I just think it's, it's, this is such a highly variable thing. And obviously once you get to a huge organization, hopefully you've got some of this stuff going on already. I mean, I, so that's just some of my thoughts. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one, one other point I'd make is that, you know, what we've been talking about um, up until now, I think is, is like, metrics that you want to be measuring, um, you know, on some kind of a cadence, right? Something you identify it, and now we want to continue to track it and sort of trend it over time. Um, but I think there's another interesting idea that comes out of, you know, like um, the DevOps handbook talks about it. It really comes right out of the Toyota system, which is the, the Andon cord. And I love that idea of like, hey, just periodically, you got to pull the cord and say, something's not quite right. Um, it's not about any specific metric. It's something's not quite right, and we want to learn from it. We want to continue learning because I think that's what metrics is all about: is that you want to continue learning and letting that drive your behavior. Um, and sometimes it's it's something that's not, you know, being driven by a specific metric, but it's just something that you know it's an alert. It's something that somebody witnessed, uh, something coming out of a log or or what have you. Um, and, you know, you just sort of got to pull that cord and say, hey, guys, let's take a time out here. Maybe it's just the team. Maybe it's not, you know, it's whoever's applicable. But um, let's figure out what's going on. Let's learn from this before this becomes something bigger and, and worse than, you know, than, than we can really deal with. Yeah. You know, and I, it, it's interesting because um, it takes some discipline to, uh, like what I was talking about, like automating rollbacks. Um, in my experience, it takes some some experimentation and discipline on because it's a process of figuring out what it, what actually like what metrics are we going to put in there to actually trigger that because if you've done a deployment and then three days later it starts generating hundreds of errors um like are you attributing do you roll that back or do you just probably not you know but like i did like you have to like build some of these um kind of feedback loop processes into what you're doing before you can start like having 
um, you know, like metrics on like failures and like, oh, then, then we're rolling this back. Because you're not going to track purely just like errors necessarily. Like your failures aren't, you know, errors that are showing up in your application. You're, you're um, you know, and I, like does it, if it, if it deploys successfully, is it always considered a success if it, if it's immediately thrown 500 errors? And so some of this is like, you've got to like, you know, work through some of those questions yourself um, as you're kind of, you know, figuring these things out. Yeah, there's, there's almost this difference between the metrics that you care about to kind of take an immediate action, you know, the, the thing that says, oh, hey, this, this deployment failed as part of the process or, you know, that, that all of a sudden we're, we're not seeing any network connections coming out of the server or something to that effect. We haven't deployed anything in weeks. You know, it's, it might be something you, you might care about. But there, then there's also the metrics that, you know, you're collecting that data, but you're mostly doing it to deep dive that, oh, three days after a deployment, an issue occurred. Um, it's helpful to kind of have those metrics around the deployment so you can go back and reference, uh, hey, do we think this was associated? Should we roll back? Is this part of some other system? Is there something else going on here? Uh, I think all of that ties together, but you know, those aren't really the kinds of the data uh, that you need to have you know, screaming in your face or, or to tie alerts to. Um, and so having that, that more streamlined approach gives you, really gives you something clear to be able to automate on and, and drive your processes on. Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things that I don't, I don't know that um, we're always completely, completely aware of is that, um, you know, there are certain people that are better at being process driven that like that they like want to manage some system and make it incrementally better. There's a lot of, cause there's a lot of people that are in software cause they like this creative aspect to it. You know, and I, I like to make the analogy that people that are good at driving processes are also, you know, like they're, they're, they're project manager types, maybe they're product owners. I don't know, like just depends, but I, I, I feel like there is a, there are innate personality traits that make some people good at this and other people's not so good at it. And I think at least being able to be aware of that as a kind of like an inherent bias as you approach something like this um, can be helpful. So I, I, you know, I'm kind of semi-obsessed with biases. Yeah. I mean, this is something we kind of talked about last episode, but this idea that, you know, as, you know, an operations person working in DevOps, you want to effectively be automating away the work that you're doing today. You know, so much of what you're doing is redundant is, and, and that even comes to responding to failures, you know, in a lot of cases, an issue might occur that might happen, you know, from time to time. You might have those spikes twice a day in your, your usage pattern. And you want to be able to take a particular action when that occurs. I think for for me within operations, that's where I like thinking being process oriented is being in a position to break down a, a particular situation or response into steps that can clearly be like, great, the next step, you know, next time I have some free time is to write a script to automate a process where we don't have to do this anymore. Um, and so being able to break those types of situations into the processes that are so associated with it is able to streamline that. But then there's so many other things where, you know, you've got a, a hundred different signals coming in and you do need to investigate, you do need to explore the data. And, and that's not really something you can have a strict process around. Um, Jeff, something that you'd mentioned before, it's kind of this idea of, you know, these metrics 
a lot of them might be valid, you know, in the moment, you know, you care that we just saw a spike in exceptions or that, that our latency is something, our CPU is something, but that we also, you, you kind of touched on this idea of like over time, being able to look at it, you know, the number of deploys you did in the past week or look at your uptime over the past day. Um, and that, the the aggregate form of these metrics can oftentimes be a lot more valuable than uh, the the actual raw data that's coming through the pipeline. Um, yeah, I I think so. And, and um, again, I, I take it back to um, you know security metrics, which is you know closer to what I end up looking at um, you know more often. But you know that's usually what we're looking at is the trending. We don't we're not all that concerned with you know, a raw number, if a certain metric is 99 today and 100 tomorrow, what does that mean? But if I trend it over time and I look at it and I say, well, wait a second, why is it increasing? Or why all of a sudden did, you know, this month did it increase much at a higher rate, you know, um, than it has before? That's usually, you know, telling us something and we've got to sort of figure out um, what that is. Um, You know, and, and I think that that's, again, it's, the numbers by themselves, unless you're having them, you know, give you a message that they're, they're, you know, um, it's not all that helpful. But um, if you can start to correlate that and say, okay, well, wait a second here, what, what else is going on? Let's start to look at, you know, other trends. Are we seeing, um, you know, does that correlate with, let's say, a whole bunch of new users that we just, you know, introduced to the system or, hey, we just had, you know, an, an acquisition of another company. And, you know, that's, that's interesting timing, what's going on, like what's causing this, spike or, or this drop in, in whatever, you know, what have you. Um, but, you know, one other thing you just mentioned, I think it's, it's interesting is the idea that, you know, not everything can be simply, um, you know, automated and sometimes it's, it's going into the raw data. Um, and, you know, that's one thing that we see a lot today in, in security is that we have a lot of security logging, for instance, right? So ideally, I think we all sort of also come you know, come to the table with that same sort of mentality is, hey, we've got all this data. Why can't we just automate alerts, you know, and sort of say, oh, I know that a, you know, a type of incident or a type of breach means that, you know, these three things have to happen. And if these three things happen, you know, then it gives me an alert. And, you know, I can start to maybe even automate how I respond to it. You know, ideally, all that kind of stuff can happen. Um, but what we find really in, in more times than not, especially in com- you know complex security incidents, is that you really need to have that human operator who's looking at the data, um, and we call it a threat hunter, because uh, you're looking through and you're like, what does the data tell me? Because I can't automate it yet. Sometimes we can automate coming out of that sort of a session, right? Because we've learned something, and hey, um, there's something that maybe we can automate afterwards. But just to sort of get to that point, we need that human operator to be looking at it. So I think that's an interesting other piece of it is, you know, when we need um, somebody to, to, you know, sort of looking at your data and saying, okay, what's going on? And that's totally outside of the automated metrics that you're looking at. I think, you know, certainly in the security world, we do this all the time. It's, it's the only way that we can ever get to automation, you know. There used to be, when I used to work at Veracode, um, the product managers would have up on their wall something that, like this little sign that would say something like, 
you know, I don't always automate, but when I do, I start by automating with humans. I'm not sure if I'm getting that quite right, but that's basically the, the idea that you have to start by automating it with somebody who's got a, you know, a pair of eyes and, and a brain to think about it, um, or, you know, several people who are doing that. And then you can sort of get to that point where maybe you can automate more of that and, you know, build a, build a, a story or, or an idea around the metrics. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at iFreaksShow.com. Yeah, I, th this makes me think of, and this is a bit of an aside, um, one project that I did during my undergraduate degree was working on a, a Texas Hold'em poker playing artificial intelligence. So I wanted to have a bot that would play poker for me. It was at the height of that big poker craze. And so one of the first things you do is you start breaking down, okay, how do you take the information that's available to you and convert that into, you know, other data that, that's going to be useful for making decisions, things like pod odds or how strong your hand is, things like that. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time iterating with it and you know, I was able to make the bot okay um, and kind of that decision making you know improve and improve but what I found drastically more valuable was that just taking those aggregates that information that I was plugging into the bot to make the decisions and surfacing it to myself as a poker player having that heads up display having that information on the dashboard made me be able to make far more nuanced and informed decisions to be able to to kind of avoid those pitfalls and you know, trying to translate the deci the decisions that I was making into something that was fully automatable was a very challenging problem. But by being able to surface that information to me, I could start to break that down in a way that you couldn't really do just trying to go from, from raw data to raw decisions. Um, and so that really resonates with me that, that surfacing information to a human as, as part of that process, especially with really hard problems to solve, um, can be incredibly valuable valuable, um, more so than, than just going straight to the automation step. Yeah, to totally agree. I mean, it's, you know, to, to the point where, you know, we see so often that, you know, security tools today are being advertised for the last couple of years, everything's being advertised as, hey, we have the AI and therefore it's, you know, just going to automate, you know, automatically respond to the incident for you and it's just going to block it and you're, you're golden. And a lot of that's just hype because, you know, it's, Clearly, we need um, machine learning and, and that sort of thing just to chug through the amount of data we have. You can't have a human sitting and chugging through um, the data streams that we see. You know, especially in a large enterprise, you've got thousands of endpoints. It's a tremendous amount of data. You know, no, there's no way that you can have a team of people doing that. So I'm not trying to you know sort of negate that, um, but that. Um, the aggregate of that data and what we're learning from it, it still needs to be looked at by a human until we can figure out, well, what, you know, is it even possible to automate through some of this? And, you know, or, or maybe what we can do is sort of narrow things down so that I'm not looking at a whole, um, you know, haystack now. I'm only looking at a small pile and that is something that's doable by a human, right? Um, yeah. th those are the types of problems that we try to try, try to get to. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things we, you know, we started off this question, so to speak, with like, what are the specific things that, that you can measure? And so I figured I would like pull up kind of what are the canonical like 
handful of data points that uh, that you want to use for measuring a pipeline, right? So the thing that delivers your software. And so I actually, well, I've put it in the show notes, but there's a, I've given a link back to um, an article written by my employer, Stelligent, way before I got there. Um, and it's basically a code pipeline dashboard, but they also do a good job of explaining all of these different metrics. And I'm not going to necessarily talk, I don't know that we necessarily need to talk about all of them, but that, you know, to give you like a preview of like the first two. So cycle time. Um, so that's just like a, what's the mean time average time between successful pipeline executions. So like if you're, you know, sending, you know, it, it, that's also measuring like how often you're, you know, pushing to the pipeline and they're successful, right? That's another way to say it. Uh, the other one is a lead time, which I actually, to me, this is the one that's the most interesting. Um, I don't know. I've never successfully used this to modify like my team's behavior, but I think it's a really interesting thing. And it's meantime, it's basically the meantime, the average time it takes for a commit to get to production. Um, and that includes rework, right? So it's like, it's really interesting. Cause so it's like, if you make the initial commit, like on a Monday and it doesn't get out until Friday, that's like a five day lead time for your code getting into production. And so, um, you know, that, that's like, you know, that's pretty, that's a, that's a pretty long time, I think in the DevOps sense of things, but I, I would say an average five days is probably completely reasonable in a lot of different situations, just depending on. And I think, um, I don't know, I think it, this is why it's important for every organization to understand what's valuable to them with these numbers um, and not just like, oh, well, we should be deploying like a hundred times a day. <laughs> for, um, it, deploy a lot if it makes a lot of sense. And then there's, there's other things in there like the meantime uh, between pipeline failures and meantime to pipeline recovery and feedback time. And those are, um, you know, things that you can kind of check out in that blog post, but I don't know if you guys wanted to specifically discuss or address these kind of like core DevOps metrics. Well, I do want to just like touch on something you, you said with regards to like, you know, how if, if all you cared about as an operations person, how many deployments you're doing per week then then you know you can get to hundreds you can get to thousands you can really drive that up you could make it so that every time someone commits something you make a deployment and hell you can make it so that you run your your pipeline even if there isn't a commit and just uh, juice that number as, as far as you want um but you know, you're in a world where, where what value are you delivering? And, and oftentimes, you know, you're going to be adding a ton of costs, a ton of overhead. You know, if, if your pipeline breaks 0.1% of the time and you, you know, you just increased your, your number of deployments a hundred fold, then you're going to have to deal with a lot more breaks and, and a lot more maintenance overhead. Um, and so, that that idea of having these additional metrics to to kind of determine the value of what you're deploying and the risks that are associated with that process that that pipeline that you're measuring i think having that balance of metrics is really key because that prevents you from you know what we call perverse incentives you know if you just care about the one 
magical metric that's relevant to your team or, or your job, then you'll do everything you can to juice that metric. Um, uh, there, there's a great example with um, you know a lot of like police officers, you know, your patrolmen are often going to be measured based on if your job is to write traffic tickets, then oftentimes there's a quota for how many traffic tickets you should write. And you'll see as the, the end of the month comes, as that quota comes up, the rate at which cops are, are writing traffic tickets goes yeah. up. Um, and so you're now in a position where like, like, are you writing more traffic t- tickets because all of a sudden at the end of the month, people are committing more crimes or are you just kind of causing issues uh, for yourself to, to meet this artificial measurement? And yeah. so by having these additional measures in place, that gives you, um, you know, a, a way to, to really see the value that you're delivering. Yeah. And I, and I, I think the danger is probably not so much yeah, it's possible that, you know, the IT folks, the developers, the whoever would get, would pull out those pointless numbers, but it's probably more likely to get, you're probably more likely to get interest from executive non-technical people that are like, oh, well, they somehow think that there's some value in that. Um, whereas if I was going to try to point to the most valuable metric on there, to me, it's, it's, it's about the, um, oh gosh, the lead time. So like I, it, for me, um, the most important thing is uh, that software, the sooner you write it and deploy it, the faster you will get feedback as if there's some serious problem with it because the best time for you to fix a bug in the code that you're working on is like the same moment or day that you write it. If it's a week later, if it takes, that's why I made that example about if you write it on Monday and it gets deployed on Friday, you've now had like four days to forget like, oh, well, this is that. And, you know, obviously there's ways to do better and have good documentation and those types of things. But it's, you know, the whole point of like pipelines and all this stuff is that like you're shrinking, um, you're making people more efficient because they're dealing with things kind of, I hate to say in real time, but they're dealing with it within the context that this crap's already loaded in their brain. Yeah. I mean, it's why we write tests. Like we want to catch it as soon as possible when it happens, because then we know what to fix. Like, oh, I changed this line, this test broke, great, easy. You don't even think about the value that you're getting there from that short lead time because it happens so quickly. Yeah. There's a, 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 go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, like, I, you know, obviously this is the thing is like, how far do you go into like, you know, in this conversation, do we go into the software development practices? And it's like code review is a very good tool, but it like, you know, like, I don't know, like, how do you gate that? I mean, I know there's some organizations where it's like, you know, what happens is that like, you're just trying to get somebody else to review your code. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a lead or an architect or somebody who's like senior, so to speak, because the senior person is just susceptible to making some issues and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, and, and I, you know, maybe there's, I've not really worked in frameworks like this, but like if there's certain situations where you just don't even have code review for certain things, like if it's, if it's an inner, inner, you know, a, um, design element, a copy element, you just never have people like look at a lot of those types of changes or something, you know, I don't know, you need some safe boundaries, but yeah. Yeah, there's a great podcast episode um, you did a few weeks ago with uh, uh, Talia um, from Split, uh, one of my coworkers actually, and where she was talking about this idea of like testing in production, and that that really, no matter what you're doing upstream, a lot of the things that can happen, you can wind up getting hit 
uh, like you, your testing environment, your deployment environment, the, the, all those early steps are never going to be identical to your production environment. And so uh, being in a position to catch that and, and try to shorten that period of time is, is really valuable. Um, and then on the flip side, uh, so there's uh, this great information about uh, like SLOs is really what we've been talking about with with these top level numbers, kind of what you're trying to judge your your organization uh, on, um, and that that is derived. You know, we were talking about this idea of it being an aggregate, um, wherein this is um, the service level. You know, objective is going to be designed based on, you know, over the course of a week, on a month, we're going to promise X amount of uptime. Um, but then it's going to be driven by service level indicators, which is what it is in the moment, you know, what what we're seeing right now, are we degraded? Are we not degraded? And so you know, that, that goes back to our conversation about how aggregates can be really valuable. But uh, something that I really loved in the um, Google Cloud series on you know, SRE, uh, when they were talking about service level objectives, is the value of having both upper and lower bounds for these. Because, you know, of course, you have that that lower bound that, that hey, we're going to meet this objective, we're going to deliver this amount of value. But if, you know, if you promise your customers 99% uptime, and you're delivering, you know, five nines, six nines of uptime, you can actually be in a position where customers then start to rely on that, depend on that, and expect that. Um, and you're often probably committing tons of resources to achieve such high level of quality um, that, that you might be over committing, it might be costing too much um, uh, from your you know, from your team to be able to achieve that, that then that becomes an expectation of downstream customers. And if you fall back to, you know, those, those potentially looser um, uptime, you know, or SLOs, you can actually get pushback from customers saying, oh, well, we've grown to expect this performance. Now that you, you had a, a lapse, what's going on here? Um, and so that, that ties back to, to what you're saying about kind of over committing, um, you know, your resources. Yeah, definitely. We'll put that uh, that episode or a reference to that episode with Talia um, in the show notes as well. So, yeah, yeah, the you know the the whole the, that Google Cloud um, episode of SLI versus SLO versus SLA. Uh, we can put that in the show notes as well. But yeah, that was interesting there too. Was you know the notion that if you try to get a little bit too aggressive on your SLO. Um, more aggressive than you need to, more aggressive than your user base uh, is requiring, then you're putting uh, resources into something that isn't really providing value. So why would you want to do that? And I think that was really, you know, sort of thoughtful of, you know, again, sort of, okay, let's not just, you know, pursue an SLO for the, for the you know, for the point of uh, pursuing an SLO, let's be mindful of, okay, where are we putting our resources and, and why are we putting our resources there? You know, if it provides value, great, go for it. If it doesn't, then clearly there's other places that we could be putting those same resources. So another question we've been talking about is, is, you know, so once you have these SLOs defined or, you know, you have built out these metrics, this was something we touched on early in the episode, was kind of that 
process for, for reporting these metrics, how do you communicate them internally to customers? You know, you might have your, your status page dashboard, um, but, but also this idea of, you know, to yourselves, like what do you alert on? What do you respond on? Um, you know, we, we talked about earlier this, how if you, put together every possible metric on your dashboard, there's going to be a ton of noise. There's going to be a lot of things that aren't actionable, that, that aren't something that you can look at. And there's always that risk when you don't calibrate your alerts appropriately that you deal with some kind of alert fatigue that, you know, I've definitely been in the position where I've been on call and I'm, I'm getting an alert you know, every other day, sometimes every single day. And you reach a point where, oh, well, this, this, this isn't necessary going to be something that I need to wake up in the middle of the night for. And so you, you start to really regret waking up. The, you know, once you're on your third time in a row waking up to respond to something that doesn't actually need to wake you up, then, you know, then you're causing major issues and, and you devalue subsequent alerts. Um, so there's definitely techniques out there for, for identifying this and, and addressing it. Um, I'd be curious what your guys' thoughts and experience has been um, with that type of process. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'll throw this out there from the security perspective. We see that all the time. Um, we see it uh, where you just get so many alerts that the alert fatigue is, it's just a known factor uh, in most security operation centers where you have these analysts um, looking at alerts and saying, I know that this huge list, right, of alerts, I know that the vast majority of them are going to be false positives. Um, and there's all kinds of research that's been done that sort of shows that, you know, just the way the brain works that the first few that you look at, you know, to your point, you'll start to, you know, work through them and diligently and all that. After that, you just want to check the box of, you know, clear it out, clear it off my dashboard. I, I, you know, I don't believe that they're anything real. So I'm just not even going to put any effort into it. And it's not a laziness thing. It's just the way the brain works when you're overwhelmed by, by alerts. So uh, what we talk about is the idea of building um, high fidelity alerts, uh, meaning a high fidelity alert is something that is a true positive 99, you know, you got to define it, but let's say it's 99% of the time or 99.9% or whatever it is, but it's almost guaranteed to be a true positive. And if you can provide your analysts only, you know, high fidelity alerts to go after, then you're going to get their attention and they're going to go after them. And, and the only way, again, you know, in the security world, the only way that we really identify whether something is high fidelity or not is you just got to look at it and sort of track it and say, what is that percent? You know, is it, is it, is it um, giving me too much false positive? Um, and if it is, then we got to just sort of dial that back and say, I'm not going to alert off of that anymore. I've got to figure out some other way that I deal with whatever that is trying to indicate to me but I really will only want my people to be looking at something that has a high fidelity, you know, associated with it. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clavo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in .NET? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out D-O-T-N-E-T, adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. 
Yeah, one of the things that that I've been playing with, um, a lot, you know, a lot of what I look at as an experimentation advisor is this idea of statistical uh, analysis, statistical significance, and so you can kind of compare, you know, previous behavior to current behavior, or, or different, you know, variations. You know, maybe you're doing a, a blue-green deployment, your canary versus your, your your production, something along those lines, and you're looking at that traffic, and you see a discrepancy, you see an alert. You, you know, we spend a lot of time then saying, well, how much is this out of normal variance? Like how, how out of line is this? And this is something that, that is an outlier that we should really respond to. Oftentimes that's from the perspective of being able to make a decision. You, know, you collect data for a week, two weeks, a month, and, and then try to make a decision based on that data. But something that I've been playing with more and more is this process of, you know, actually tying that analysis into your alerting systems as well so as you say you know being able to define some level of confidence these high fidelity alerts um it's a, a really tough or interesting question because the the higher bar you set for you know false positives you know if you want to get rid of all false positives then there's a good chance you're going to have a bunch of false negatives or that there's issues that you're going to miss um and Unfortunately, for many businesses, you're in a position where, you know, I'd rather wake up my operations team, you know, every single night forever than to miss, you know, some critical issue for eight hours while they're asleep. Um, and so trying to draw that line and, and understand the, the scale of a particular problem um, is, is what's, you know, really challenging. You know, one one thing I'm curious about, because um, one thing that we've seen companies really start start to embrace over the last couple of years um, is the notion of these bug bounty, um, you know, programs. I don't know if you guys have seen this before, right? But most, certainly most high-tech companies today, I think, have really invested in it just because there's almost no choice at this point because there's people who, you know, there, there are these security researchers out there and I'm saying sort of quote unquote, um, because some of them are professional and some of them are just, you know, sort of armchair uh, hobbyists. But either way, they're going to start, you know, sort of poking at your code, poking at your application, looking for something that's interesting. Um, and if they find something, they're going to alert you to it. And you've got to have a system set up so that you can sort of, you know, get that information to the right people, get it vetted and figure out, hey, is this something real or is it not? Um you know, and if it is, obviously, try to get a fix in. And, and some of these bug bounty programs, those, they're paying people. So it's sort of like, I love, I love the idea because it's sort of really, um, you know, what Talia was talking about is that testing production, but it's not your own testers. You know, it's these people outside. It's a, a lot of it's to user base um, who's testing for you. Um, and again, if you set it up right and you do it well, which today it, it's taken a lot of iterations in the security community and, and, you know, in terms of companies really getting it set up correctly. Um, but, you know, today it, it's for a lot of companies and it's not that hard to do now. There's, you know, it's actually outside companies or basically run the program for you, you know, and, and, and you know, help you to sort of manage that whole process. Um, but you're also giving these monetary incentives to basically have your user community um, make your software better, at least from a security defect perspective. And I'm curious if you guys are seeing that outside of security um, to you know, usability and other types of defects that can pop up. I haven't seen anything quite like that from the security side. I mean, obviously there, there's a lot of 
um, I don't know, there's, there's people are willing to put money at this, right? Because it's, if they can identify things, it's almost like buying, it's like a, buying a piece of insurance. It's like, we're going to set aside $300,000 a year for our $10 million company that will be bug bounty stuff. It doesn't mean we spend all the money, but we at least set it aside and budget for it and, and hope that this makes us more secure. Um, so that's one of the ways I like to think about that kind of thing is it's insurance. I mean, um, and it's funny because what, I mean, that, that's what securing things better in general is, is it's, um, it's a form of insurance. Uh, you know, I, you know, I don't have a lot to say on the monitoring thing because it's such like a, like a rabbit hole thing that like, I, I just feel like I have nothing constructive to say without like talking forever. And I love to talk. So, <laughs> but the one thing that I was going to say was, um, kind of related to this is, and I, not, I can't even remember what spawned it specifically, but it's one of the reasons why I, li- I like, you know, in my own business, hiring consultants to come in, if, whether if it was just for like a week or a month or something like that, is because you're getting this outside perspective and like ways that your business could be better. Um, and if as long as you're what you're ready to listen to that, you might hire people and they might not be very helpful, right? I mean, that that is just part of it. And I think to me, that's part of that, having that experimentation mindset with everything that like not everything is going to give you, you know, like a big bouquet of flowers and a box of chocolates, you know, it's like, sometimes you're just showing up and doing stuff. It's like, I mean, it's kind of funny. Cause like, um, I don't know, like it, it, there's just so much like, you know, conditioning where we want like some reward for doing something. And, um, I don't know. It's kind of funny because I imagine if you had a lot of people, if you talk to a lot of people, like they never need a reward to like, you know, like feed their kids every night or take them to soccer or whatever, but they want like a reward all day in their job or something like, and I'm guilty of this very much myself. I'm just, you know, I love talking about human behavior, but it's just something I think about a lot. So. Yeah. I, I find that, um, that process of being able to work through, you know, with customers, with your teammates, you know, the, the problem solving process, you find yourself pattern matching um, against yourself uh, after a long enough period of time. You, you kind of see problems and, you know, you're in this position where, well, oh, this is really similar to the thing that happened six months ago or a year ago or five years ago if you've been in an organization long enough. And then unfortunately, you're solving problems with the toolkit that you've always been solving those problems with. And so I think that idea of an outside perspective, that, that's why it's so important to have diversity in your hiring. And, you know, when you can't achieve that, being able to bring in people, you know, one of the greatest values of people that, that work in the consulting industry is that ability to see such a variety of different organizations in a way that, that no one's individual career would be able to expose them to. Um, and so you can get those perspectives. Um, and then more specific to, to your question, Jeff, like, I mean, even as, you know, my company for the longest time, we didn't have a bug bounty uh, program in place, but we'd still get emails in to, to security that said, hey, like, I found this issue, like, give me money, like, um, and, you know, being able to communicate with them and, and handle that, you, you need to have a way to, to 
they handle that process and, and you know to a certain extent reward people for their their work um but you know asking about other parts of the system i, I guess the, the closest thing that that i've seen to um that for you know the non-security side of things is, is customer bug reports you know you you know if you you have a good customer base you're going to get a constant stream of hey this usability thing isn't there hey things are performing slowly um and you know it's it's this kind of trade-off where it's honestly, it's really great quality feedback. Um, you know, you're very unlikely to get a false positive in that data set. Um, but, you know, it's still, that's also exactly the people that you're trying to prevent these issues from affecting. So, um, if, uh, I, I know one of the things that we've worked to cultivate is, you know, it's kind of, we call them beta customers, but, but basically customers that have a deep interest in a particular you know, capability, part of the product, part of what we're offering. Um, for some, you know, different customers have different interests. And so we can say, hey, we're testing something or we're looking for a particular piece of feedback. Like we know that scalability is critical for this set of customers where usability is critical for another in, in a different way. And so they're a, a much more approachable ear to be able to dive into these questions and get that feedback in a more meaningful way. Um, that, that qualitative approach, all the metrics in the world, you know, uh, so often I find myself that the, most of the metrics that are really meaningful to us have come as a result of us receiving qualitative feedback in some fashion, um, internally or externally, and then us trying to distill that down into something we can turn into a metric that we can monitor. But it wasn't until we got that initial qualitative feedback that we even knew to look for it. And so it's, it's a interesting perspective. Good deal, man. What, uh, we ready to do some picks. We, uh, got anything else we want to chat before we do the picks. I'm good with picks. Um, want to yeah. take us off Scott? All right. Um, you know, I'm gonna do a. I'm gonna do kind of a. I, I tend to stay away from silly ones sometimes, but I'm gonna do a silly one uh, that I've. My wife and I have been. Did I talk about this last week? I meant. So we were watching this show alone, and there's actually been like seven plus seasons or whatever. And you know, my wife and I are both like I don't know, twelve and thirteen and fifteen year vegetarians, and basically in this show, people are like hunting and killing fish and doing stuff the whole time and. You know, you know, there's some graphic, gruesome things, but it's kind of crazy just to, it's just like, I haven't watched any reality TV in probably a decade. Um, and so it's really interesting for me to watch something like this and be like, oh, oh actually, I, should, I take that back. I watched the, Brit the British baking show. But, uh, but yeah, I think Alone is really, really interesting. It's just, you know, it's one of those shows where you're just yelling at people the whole time. You're like, what are you doing? But uh, so I think that's one of those silly ones that I, I would say check out if you think it even slightly is interesting. Just kind of seeing how like people like straight up break down because they, um, you know, they've been sitting out in the woods by themselves for 30 days in a row, you know. So I don't know. It's it's kind of a weird thing. We got really into it. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, Book, I, I, I love to make book recommendations and, you know, I think the thing that really stands out to me related to this topic was the Nicole Forsgren Accelerate. Certainly not the first time we've discussed it on this podcast, um, but it's, um, it really gets into the research behind it and why, um, 
if you want to be a high performing software organization, you have to get all of these things right. And it requires a lot of discipline. And um, unfortunately, you know, it requires getting lots and lots of other people on board and involved. And that's why I think the books are really important for kind of bringing your organization, your team, whatever, your owners, you know, the executives, all these folks along for the ride. And that's why we, you know, I think we keep, you know, suggesting the, you know, the Phoenix project, the unicorn project accelerate. And so I just would reinforce that again, uh, rather than having something else to say, since it's so on topic to what today we talked about. Yeah. Um, I, I want to, uh, double tap on, on alone as well. Um, it's definitely very different from the great British baking show. Um, I, just a little. I don't think you quite touched on the, the underlying <laughs> yeah, I don't think you touched quite on the, the underlying premise, but, but basically think like a uh, survivor man, you know, guy in the woods with his own camera set up, you know, living on the land, um, tr- trying to survive. Uh, but the premise there is that they take 10 people, survivalist experts from them all in a position to uh, see who can stay, uh, survive the longest in that scenario. Um, and you know, people will be out there for months on end. Um, great show. Uh, I think I caught the first season on Netflix, the third season on Hulu, and finally found like from the beginning and then we started over from there. Um, uh, besides, um, you know, also agreeing with that recommendation. One thing, and this is you know, not intended to be a plug, but really like resonated with me as we were talking through this conversation. Um, you know, at my company, we use Datadog. I'm sure other companies have a similar feature, um, but they recently added this capability to find correlations in the metrics. Um, so, you know, you might be looking on a dashboard and see a particular issue. And this is this process of like deep diving into solving something and you'll see that there was a spike in traffic or, you know, a spike in, in, you know, latency in your pipeline, something to that effect. And what it will be able to do is effectively you highlight the time period and then it just for every other metric that you have in your system, it will look at that same time period and see if it's a discrepancy with the others. Um, And so you'll find, you know, other relevant changes that happen at the same time. And it just streamlines that exploration process in a really interesting way. Um, I think, you know, as we talked about from that concept of of empowering the, the human part of the equation, that felt like a really valuable um, finding those tools and opportunities to take the that exploratory work where you're just clicking through pages and get rid of that um, by using machine learning or, or other statistical techniques um, just saves you a lot of time and, and can be a really valuable tool. Jeff? Yeah, so just to, um, I guess, add on to what, uh, Scott's uh, recommendations in the books. You know, I, I've been going back through the uh, um, beyond the the Phoenix Project. Um, you know, the uh, audio book, um, and I, I think it's really well worth listening to that if you haven't done that before, because you really sort of get the backstory, but you get a lot of the a lot more of the details of how uh, you know sort of what what went into the the thinking of the book and the storyline and all that. Um, so highly recommend that. But my pick is also maybe a little bit silly, but I've been really getting to this this idea from the Toyota system of of the and on cord. I mentioned it in the in the episode. Um, but I love this idea of like when things are not quite working correctly. So if something that usually takes you 50 seconds is now taking you more, you pour, pull the cord and you have to try and figure out. You know, everyone basically stops and 
you got to figure out what's going on. And, and, you know, it just blew my mind when I heard this the first time that, you know, in the Toyota system, like it was being pulled like 5,000 times a day. And so when they asked, you know, the Toyota folks, like, how is it that you, you know, your system is so efficient and that you're able to enter new markets and be so competitive and all this. And that was the response was that, well, cause the Anton core gets pulled 5,000 times a day. And so we're constantly learning We're you know, and, and if it's, and if it's not being pulled that many times a day, then we're asking ourselves, why isn't it? And what's going on? Cause if it's, if we're not learning, we're not going to maintain our competitive edge. And I just think that concept is so interesting. It's so compelling um, you know, and it's so applicable to anything that we're doing, um, you know, whether, you know, DevOps related or, you know, even at just whatever you do for a hobby or anything else that we do in life. So, yeah, I, I, know, idea. I, I was just going to add that I think one of the amazing aspects of that story is those 5,000 pulls are being done by just anybody on the production line. It's not some supervisor or manager. This is, you know, empowering at the like, the, you know, kind of like the lowest level. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and it's blameless, right? That's the idea, is that it's just to learn. Yeah, totally. Blameless. That's, it's such, that's such a challenging thing, so it's, it's really cool. Yep. Well, excellent. Um, I think that covers everything for our show. Um, thank you so much, Jeff, Scott, for being on the show. This has been a really great conversation. Um, and thank you all for listening. Yep, Have thank a great you. one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.